Good evening. I'm Associate Pastor Eric Corbett, filling in for Pastor Rick this evening. And tonight, we are going to talk about worship in the midst of challenges. And we'll take a look at uh, three men um, who faced various challenges and circumstances, and how they approached these situations is that they they worshiped. And so uh, the verse that we'll kind of pinpoint this evening, uh, the first one we'll talk about is, is the man Job. And in Job chapter 1, verse 20, it just simply says this, Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And so worship is an expression of reverence and adoration to God. That's just a very simple definition of what worship is. And man was uniquely created to be able to worship God. Unlike animals and other creatures, man was made to walk upright. And so some of the animals can stand and even walk on two feet for some distance, uh, such as apes and monkeys, but uh, that's not their primary mode of transportation. They still need to use their arms as support for much of their mobility. If you've ever seen monkeys and apes walk around, that's, that's what they do. However, man not only walks upright physically, but he can also walk upright morally. And he can look up and lift his hands to acknowledge his creator as a form of worship. And Lamentations chapter 3 verse 41 says this, Let us lift our hearts and hands to God in heaven. So um, our worship, and, and we have the ability to, to acknowledge this, this God that we have. And we can make a willful decision and perform deliberate acts of worship to God. And that's something that separates us from, from the animals. The Bible gives no indication that the animals and other creatures on earth do this. We don't see bears gather together on Sunday morning to go to church service. Um, cats may prey on small animals and people that they don't like, but they don't pray to God. Uh, even birds, when birds sing all those beautiful songs, they're not singing about God or to him. Um, my understanding from what I've kind of read, apparently when birds sing, it's typically one of two things being stated. It's either, hey, baby, baby, or it's the equivalent of get off my lawn. So <laughs> birds don't really have a lot of variety and reasons for why they sing, although it sounds wonderful to us. You know, it's uh, something that I think God has created them in that way, and we get to enjoy it. But a lot of times it's just a lot of bickering. Um, it's not worship. So worship is actually part of our design and how we should conduct ourselves, and it's, it's part of fulfilling our purpose. It's part of our, uh, the, the reason why God created us. Of course, he created us for fellowship and, and communion with himself, but worship is a huge part of that. And so um, when, when man does not worship and he doesn't worship God, then he's, he's missing out on fulfilling his purpose. And so worship um, carries the idea within it that the one being worshipped is worthy. And only God is to be worshipped because only he is worthy of our worship. And so worship of idols or anything that's not the one true God of the Bible, it's, it's not really worship. Um, worship of anything else really doesn't matter. That doesn't mean that it's okay to worship other things. That's not, it's not saying it doesn't matter in that regard. But it, it doesn't matter because those other things, again, they're not worthy. The worship of them is actually worthless. So, you know, uh, pagan religions and, you know, all sorts of things that people idolize and worship, that worship is worthless. It, it doesn't mean anything. 
Uh, and so that's exactly why it doesn't matter. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, speaking of uh, idols. Paul writing to the church in Corinth, who was filled with idolatry at the time. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4, it says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other god but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. So the Bible is very clear. There's only one true God, and only he is worth worship. Worship of anything else really is not truly worship. And so we were created, again, for this worship, and that's what the life and identity of the Christian is supposed to be. It's supposed to be one that's marked by worship. In First Peter, he writes this in chapter 2, verse 9. He says, But you, speaking of the Christians, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so the saints are, uh, again, part of our purpose and, and what we're supposed to do is live a life that reflects the, the, the God that we belong to, but also that carried out through acts of worship. And so the believers, to understand that no matter what circumstances we face in life, we're to be ready and able to respond the right way. And many times the right way to respond to a certain situation can't be any other way or anything other than just to worship the Lord. And so we'll take a look at the first um, example of someone going through a, a challenging circumstance and worshiping. And again, it's Job. And so turn to Job and uh, I'll read verses, uh, Job chapter 1, I'll read verses 13 through 20. And so this is... Um, um, there's this, this argument going on behind the scenes where uh, Satan, you know, is involved and, and God's basically using Job as an example uh, to prove Satan wrong. And um, <clears throat> Job goes through all of these, uh, suffers through all of these things that, that uh, Satan is allowed to do. And so uh, in Job chapter 1, verse 13, it says, um, now, there was a day when his sons, speaking of Job, his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. When the Sabaeans raided them and took them away, indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Verse 17, while he, was, while he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels, and took them away, yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Verse 20, then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and fell to the ground and worshipped. And so the, the Bible tells us that Job was a righteous man. <clears throat> In Job 1, um, uh, chapter 1, verse, verse uh, 
1, it says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. So the Bible is very clear that Job was a, was a man that, um, that was righteous. And he was righteous because he believed in and trusted God. And for anyone else that does that, God accounts it as righteousness. We read that in Romans chapter 4, verse 5. But even though a person may be called righteous by God, it doesn't mean that they're guaranteed to be excluded from suffering. And so just because you are one who pleases God and God looks after those who belong to him and protects us, it doesn't mean that he's going to shield us from everything that could be harmful to us and that we can endure actually some pretty significant suffering. In Luke chapter 16, uh, Jesus tells a parable uh, about, uh, which is actually not a parable because he uses a name. You, all of the parables Jesus uh, tells typically don't have names. They're nameless people. But he, he, he puts a name to this, so it's, it's, it's indication it, it's a real account. And he's speaking of uh, uh, Lazarus the beggar. In Luke chapter 16, verse 19, it says, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. So it tells us very plainly here that this man, Lazarus, um, lived a life that was, that was pretty, pretty tough. Um, he was sickly, and it, it doesn't give any indication he got any relief during his time here. But because he was righteous, when his time came and his days were ended, he was taken home to be with the Lord and in, and in his presence and in glory. Whereas the rich man who had a wonderful life, who was not righteous, his end was completely different. So again, <clears throat> the righteous are not exactly excluded from suffering, as we, we see with this man Job. And so Job was hit with this onslaught of trouble. He was hit with successive waves of bad news and tragedy. I mean, he gets one wave, and then before that's finished, he gets hit with another wave. It's just like, I mean, you know, huge breakers crashing against the shore, just continually just coming and just battering him. And, again, this was all done to overwhelm Job so that he would either be crushed or he would curse God. That was Satan's intent. If he buckled under the pressure to be crushed under the weight of this sorrow— uh, so, again, he lost his possessions, but also his loved ones. Um, if, he, if he was crushed under that weight, he risked turn away, turning away from his faith in the Lord. Sometimes things and circumstances can be so heavy that that's what the temptation is, is that, that you think that God has left you, that he's not, he's not paying attention, that he's not doing anything. And that's not the case. That wasn't the case here with Job. Um, he didn't know that at the time, but that was the temptation, and that was what, what Satan was after. Again, he suffered tremendous loss, not only of possessions and livelihood, but of, of his, his family, of his dear loved ones. But the Bible says that we're not to sorrow as others who have no hope in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 2. So the righteous are not supposed to be overwhelmed and crushed by sorrow because we have a hope and an understanding that there is more to this life than the circumstances and the things that can happen. And in that context, in First Thessalonians, it's speaking about believers who have died. And so when you, when you know someone that is a Christian, they know God. And, and when they pass, they don't pass away 
because we know where they've gone. They've passed on, maybe. That's what I like to say. Then you don't, yeah, you can miss the person. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's natural, and, and, and there's space for that. But we're not supposed to be crushed uh, by, by that loss because it's really not a loss. And if it happens to be loved ones that are not believers, then you know what? God is able to give grace and mercy and peace even in those situations. And I, I've known believers that have had family members that, all intents and purposes, there was no guarantee or sometimes it was known. This person was not a believer. And, and, and to see them and to watch them go through that process and them still come out shining, still loving the Lord, still trusting him, able to say it is well with my soul, um, is phenomenal. And so, again, we're not supposed to react like the rest of the world when it comes to sorrow. And so this man, Job, uh, that was the temptation, that he would, he would be crushed by that. Now, again, the temptation was, uh, you know, under his loss to be crushed under the pressure. But while in his suffering, because he did suffer later uh, past this event, um, that temptation was for him to become angry and bitter against God, which would ultimately lead him to curse God. That was the intent of, of that. So, you know, there's these waves of, you know, Job losing property and, and family. And then later on, we'll, we'll touch on that in a moment, where his body is touched and um, he suffers tremendously. And the temptation there, Satan was trying to get him to, to curse God. And so one of the most instigating forces that we can face in life is pain. Pain can cause a person to react in a whole lot of different ways. Uh, many times people will act negatively toward others because they're in pain. And that pain can be either physical and it can also be emotional. So somebody's hurting, you know, maybe, maybe someone's got a bad back and, and you don't know it. And every time you see them, they're just grumpy and grumbling. Or it could be worse. You know, sometimes if the pain is severe or chronic, again, people can be mean. But it's, it's because there's, there's something that's truly aggravating them, and it's, it's permeating their life and permeating their relationships and how they relate to, to others. And so we need to be careful to make sure that we don't allow pain to be an open door to create fertile soil for the devil to sow seeds. Because this is what, what happened um, when Job began to suffer. This is what his wife said. This is what Mrs. Job said. <laughs> Job chapter 2, verse 9. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. I mean, that's really not any encouraging words to come from his wife. You know, don't know all of what was going on there. Um, but she obviously, to me, was under influence of, of Satan. Because that's what he was after. That's why he... He did that. He was trying to, to get Job to curse God. And so sometimes others who witness our suffering can be used as discouragers. And in this moment, that's Job's wife. Then later on, Job has three of his friends and some friends that come by, and they were a whole lot worse. They were okay for about a week, and then they opened their mouth, and they started talking, and it was all downhill from there. And they were, they did much more damage than his wife did. Because you know what? Job's wife, you know, he still had his wife at the end. She stuck around and he stuck with her. Uh, and I guess he restored the relationship with his friends too. But there was, <laughs> they were probably, they were put on notice. Anyway, um, so the, the intent and the temptation under the suffering was to, to get Job to curse God. But through all of this, Job, he did hold to his integrity um, that going through this ordeal that God allowed him to go through. 
you know, first again, it was this blitzkrieg of, of tragedy and the loss of possessions and family. And then <clears throat> Satan was allowed to set off this nuclear bomb in his body. And that's what it was like. It was, I mean, it was just bad. And so I believe that Job was able to withstand all of these things because he had already disarmed their power over him because his first response to them was to go to God. Because we read in, in when, when all of this happened, you know, in the, the first onset of this onslaught, Job arose, he tore his clothes, his cl- tore his robe, shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. In the midst of all that was going on, the calamity that took place, his first response was to worship the Lord. That was, that's what he went to. That was his default. He didn't waste any time. He didn't have to ponder and think about it. Um, that was what his first response was, was to go to God. And uh, that is what I believe allowed him to withstand the, the continued um, uh, pressure and the suffering that ensued after that. And so, um, so, so although we may not face anything to the extremes that Job did, we can all encounter trouble and suffering on some level in this life. And to some degree, we will all encounter something. But how you handle that is, uh, is, is up to you. So, you know, how do you handle a sucker punch to the face, <laughs> you know, or, or, you know, a punch to the stomach? You know, what's your response when, you know, you get some bad news? Maybe, you know, you get results of a test back and, and they're not good, you know, or, um, you know, maybe, you, you know, the boss says, you know, I, I need you to come to my office and uh, see me for a minute. And the outcome of that is not good. Um, you know, or maybe you just have, you know, some pain that you're enduring that just, just it just never goes away. It, it may subside a little bit here and there, but it's just constant. What, what do you do in those situations? Well, I, I hope that when our time comes <clears throat> for whatever God allows to come our way, that our first response is to do like Job. It's like Job's, which was the right response, and that's to worship the Lord. So uh, the right response to tragedy and suffering, we look at Job, and it's to worship the Lord. So next we'll look at a man named Gideon and the right response to doubt and fear. And for that, we'll take a look at Judges chapter 7, and we'll read verses 9 through 15. And so um, Gideon was a, was a judge. Uh, God had raised him up <clears throat> to deliver the people from the Midianites. He went through this whole process. And so here it is on the night before the, the great battle, Judges chapter 7, verse 9. It happened on the same night that the Lord said to him, to Gideon, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. Now the Midianites and Amalekites, all the people of the east, were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number as the sand by the seashore in multitude. And when Gideon had come, there was a man telling a dream to his companion. He said, I have had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. It came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned, and the tent collapsed. 
Then his companion answered and said, This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon and the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. And so it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation that he worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. So again, here we have a circumstance where Gideon is, is, is afraid. He, he was a man with great capacity and potential, but initially he didn't realize it. And uh, we, we learn that in, in early on in, in Judges chapter 6, a chapter earlier, and we look at verse, uh, verse 11 and 12. And this is what it says. Now, the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiziarite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. So Gideon's just minding his business. He's, he's hiding, but... Uh, the angel of the Lord shows up and pronounces this proclamation of, above uh, over him that he's that the Lord is with him and he's a mighty man of valor, and he's like, huh? <laughs> Me? <laughs> you know, Gideon he suffered with doubts, and we see that through this story. You know, over and over again, he's he's doubting, and um, the you know he he's there's a couple of doubts that he has. Uh, one is the Lord's seeming inaction. This is one of the first doubts that we see in. And that's in uh, chapter 6. We look at verse 13. Uh, Gideon, speaking to the angel of the Lord, Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Uh, Then the Lord turned to him, verse 14, and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent sent you? So Gideon, you know, uh, was familiar with the scripture. He was familiar with the history of the the children of Israel and the promises that God had made to them. And he hasn't been seeing that. Right now the Midianites are harassing them in the land. And he's like, well, where is God and his promises? He's, He's doubting. And, um... Is there something that you're waiting on the Lord to do um, that you feel like he's not doing anything at all? Something that you feel he's he's promised to you or given an indication that he's going to do and, and it seems like he's not not moving? Well, be careful because that attitude can breed a complaining spirit. And all you got to do is read the book of Numbers and find out that that's not good. Um, so we must always remember that the Lord is sovereign and that he does whatever he pleases. He works on his own timetable. He uh, does things according to his wisdom. Uh, he does them in his own time, and it's not always going to be set by the time that we set on our watches. And so sometimes we just have to wait, and that's just it. <laughs> There's not really anything else you can do. You just got to sit there and wait. But there is something you can do. During those times, your faith can be built and can be strengthened. You can, you can default to the things that you know about God. You can go back to the things that you have have seen him do in your life, those Ebenezer stones. Um, I was talking to a brother just this this Sunday, and he was talking about how he was sharing about how uh, in his business there was a a client that he had uh, years ago. I mean, like a long time ago, like I think like a couple decades. And long story short, they went back and saw some records and realized that they – 
didn't pay uh, all that they were supposed to pay at that time. And anyway, long story short, they, they came back to this brother and they, they, they paid him. And it, it was just this blessing. It was, it was clearly, and I'm messing up the details. I don't remember all of them. But it was clear that this was the Lord. And it was, it was the Lord, you know, giving encouragement, um, you know, um, to, this, to this man. And so God has done things like that for all of us. And those aren't things that we're supposed to forget. We're not supposed to take those things lightly. When God does something and he goes out of his way to do it and it's noticeable, then that's, that's our cue that, okay, this is something that we need to, we need to, we need to mark this down. You know, Abraham, when, when God did things like that, he built an altar. And, um, you know, and other, as others did in, in, uh, in the scriptures we see. And we don't, we're not going to go around setting up altars. But, um, but we can mark in our memory and in our hearts these things that God has done for us. And those are the things that we're going to need in those times when we feel like God has kind of left us, that God is not doing anything. And so Gideon had doubts because of God's seeming inaction. He also had doubts in being certain that he heard God clearly. And Judges chapter 6, verse 17, uh, it says this. Then he, Gideon, speaking to the angel of the Lord, then he said to, to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. Then go down to verse 21. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff. So, so Gideon sets up an altar. He follows the instructions that, that the, the Lord gave him. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread. And fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. And the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. Now Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. So, you know, and in, in earlier on, he's, he's questioning whether or not this is truly the Lord. And then the Lord has to demonstrate to him, yes, it's me. Uh, Gideon, I'm telling you these things and these things are going to come to pass. And this is what I have for you to do. So, you know, Gideon was doubting whether or not he was initially hearing God clearly. He was also doubting because he doubted having confidence that God was going to use him. And in uh, verse 36 of chapter 6 in Judges, this is what it says. So Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, look, I shall put a fleece of wool out on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece together, he wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. Verse 39. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. Let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, but on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on all the ground. So here's Gideon putting God to the test again, doubting whether or not what God had said about him was true. And he puts this fleece out. And we even have that as, as, as believers, as Christians. You know, you know, you put out a fleece. You know, it's kind of a, the term of you're testing whether or not this is the Lord, if he's in it or not. Well, you know, God was very gracious, and he honored this for Gideon, but he didn't have to. But, you know... Gideon was really not supposed to be doing this. He was really kind of supposed to just accept what the Lord had said and move move forward. But again, he had doubts. And these doubts that Gideon had, they, that he continually had, they left him open to fear. 
and fear came in and, and took over. You know, it was fear that caused him to thresh wheat in the wine press, as we read in, in verse 11 of chapter 6. Gideon threshed wheat in the wine press in order to hide it from the Midianites. The wine press was down low, and it was supposed to be a place where you squash grapes. It wasn't supposed to be used for a threshing floor. That was usually on high ground so that the wind would be useful to blowing away the chaff. Well, he's hiding, and, uh, and it's because of fear. It was fear that caused him to perform his obedience to the Lord in the dark. Uh, you know, the Lord tells him to, uh, to tear down the, the altar to, to Baal uh, in, his, in his, his father's altar, as a matter of fact. And, uh, and, and to, you know, he gives him specific instructions on what to do. And Gideon says, okay, I'm going to do this. But because of fear, he doesn't do it out in the open. This is what it says in uh, verse 27 of Judges chapter uh, 6. So Gideon took ten men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him. That's great, Gideon. You're being obedient. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. So do you have difficulty being a Christian out in the open? You know, um, you shouldn't. Do you struggle with doing what you know you should do because of being afraid of what others may think of you? And, and of your faith, you shouldn't. Um, you know, this is what Proverbs 29, verse 25 says. It says, the fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. And so don't be afraid of being obedient to the Lord because of others. If God's told you to do something, then do it regardless of the circumstances. That doesn't mean, you know, being reckless. I mean, you know, you may have to gauge some things. But if God's given it to you to do and he said, this is what I want you to do, and this is what's going to happen as a result of it, then we should go forward with it. And don't let others cause you to be disobedient to him. <laughs> you know, um, don't, don't, don't allow that to happen. And so Gideon, of course, was, had a fear of man. And even after all that God had shown him through the, you know, the fleece, you know, all of that, and God, you know, pronouncing, you know, that he's a mighty man of valor and, you know, doing this miraculous thing with the offerings, you know, he still struggled with fear. And we see it very clearly in Judges chapter 7, verse 10. And this is what it says. The Lord says to him in verse 10, he says, if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant. So what does he do in verse 11? It says, so then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost. So it's very clear here. The Lord says, all right, Gideon, if you're, if you're afraid, and I know you are, then I want you to go down to the camp with your servant. And that's, what, that's exactly what Gideon does. So here he is. He's this commander of these forces that are getting ready to, you know, have this battle, this great battle with the Midianites, God doing this thing where, you know, he whittles down the numbers, <laughs> which probably shook Gideon a little bit more, you know, and even in that process, God says, you know, tell the men if they're afraid to go home <laughs> and thousands of them leave. And um, so, you know, God is kind of hinting to Gideon, okay, Gideon, you don't have to be afraid here because I'm, I'm, I'm addressing this. Um, but the night before, there's this great battle, the greatest battle that he's ever faced, and he's the commander, and he himself is afraid. And if this isn't dealt with, and, and his fear isn't conquered, 
then it could turn out really bad. I mean, it would be bad if he was, you know, on the battlefield and 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 he he became he let his fear overcome him. Um, so God, in His grace, makes it very clear that He doesn't need to fear His enemy. Well, how does He do that? He does that in this wonderful way, and. In verses 13 and 14 of Judges chapter 7. And I, I love this because it's, I mean, I, I just got to read it. <laughs> Judges 7 verse 13. And when Gideon had come, there was a man telling a dream to his companion. He said, I have had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. It came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned and the tent collapsed. So, <laughs> Well, read verse 14. Then his companion answered and said, This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. And and so here God allows, because he knows Gideon is, you know, he's, he's, he's scared. <laughs> All right, Gideon, I'm going to make it so obvious to you that, that, that you don't have to be afraid. That, I mean, again, this is comical. You know, he... he he basically is saying, you know, in this dream that, you know, a bran muffin rolls into the camp. It doesn't even, he doesn't even say it's hurled in. He doesn't say a bran muffin flew into the camp. I mean, he says it, it, it tumbled. I mean, it's like kind of sloppy. It's not rolling the straight line. And it just happens to hit the end of this, this tent and it falls down and the people are crushed. And, and the other guy is like, I know exactly what that means. I mean, and it's, it's crazy. You know, it's so outrageous. Again, it, it's comical. And I kind of wonder if Gideon's, uh, his servant, Pura, snickered a little bit. I mean, because over here, this, it's got to be kind of funny. I mean, we, 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 we think, I think it's hilarious. God made it so obvious to Gideon that the victory was in the bag, that his fears and doubts were all finally, finally obliterated. And Gideon's only response as a righteous man who really, truly did love the Lord was exactly what it was. And in verse 15, it says, And so it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation that he worshipped. And, you know, again, I, I, I kind of think that, that Pura might have snickered a little bit all up until he looked to the side and he sees Gideon with his hands raised, his head bowed, and just worshiping the Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus. You know, well, that's, he didn't say Jesus, but, you know, thank you, Lord, that for making, giving me what I needed. And that's what the, the Lord does. He gives us what we need. If you're afraid, you don't have to be because God can, he can, he can break through all of that. He can brace you. He can strengthen you. He can make you that mighty man of valor, just like he told Gideon that he was. So, um, you know, after this, we see Gideon fulfill the word that the Lord spoke regarding him being a mighty man of valor. And he goes on and he says, arise, telling the troops, arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. So what about, what about you? Do you struggle with fear? We all struggle with fear from time to time in various things, in various ways. Some people are afraid of, of you may be afraid of something that I'm not afraid of and vice versa. Um, but do you have times when you are afraid to or maybe even can't move forward? Because you're hindered by fear. And that's not good. And God says, you don't have to be that way. God's, this is what he says. This is what the Lord says to those who call on him in those moments. When fear is just. And you know what? You have to be careful. Because once it starts, it can. It can oh, man. It's, it just creeps and just takes over. And you have to uh, abate that. Uh, but when, you, when you're in that moment, when it's, when it's happening, 
Isaiah 41.10, one of my favorite verses, the Lord clearly addressing this issue of fear. He says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God is, is making it. He said, look, I know in a sinful fallen world, you're going to encounter things that are going to frighten you. But I am here and I can help you overcome that and we can get through this together. And that's exactly what he does with this man, Gideon. And so in those times when fear is trying to grip you, worship him. Worship him and find the strength to go forward. It's okay, you know, to take a moment sometimes if you need to and, uh, and, and get things together. Um, but go to the Lord. And so that's what Gideon does in this moment. And, of course, he was never really afraid again. As a matter of fact, <laughs> kind of overcompensated. And Gideon started, <laughs> Gideon started kind of getting out of hand a little bit later in his life. And, and you know, uh, he didn't mess it up too bad. But he, he started kind of wilding a little bit. But anyway, so um, uh, lastly, we will look at um, the right response to forgiveness and consequence of sin. And for that, we will look at uh, our man, David. And that's in 2 Samuel chapter 12, and we're going to read verses 13 to 20. So this is a little background here. Uh, most of us are familiar with the story, but if you're not, uh, David fell into sin. Um, there was there was adultery and murder, and 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 he he hid it. And I don't think that David really thought that he got away with it, but he he hid it for some time, and then it's addressed. And so we'll pick it up. Uh, God sends a prophet Nathan to confront, who was actually a friend as well, to confront David to to bring this out into the open. And so we'll pick it up in verse 13 of 2 Samuel chapter 12. This is after Nathan has confronted him and basically said, David, you are the man. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin and you shall not die. However, because of this deed, you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also who was born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house. And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. So the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day it came to pass that the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him, and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. Verse 19, when David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. Verse 20, so David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he went to his own house, and when he requested, they set before him. They set food before him, and he ate. So here's David. He was a man that had a heart for God, very clear of that through through the scriptures. He loved the Lord. He knew who he was before the Lord, and the Lord used David mightily. 
Uh, David is such a huge figure in the scriptures that, you know, people, we, we name our, our sons after, after him. Um, it's a very common name. However, he wasn't perfect. And the Bible doesn't cover up his imperfections. And hopefully we can learn from them. And so David's sin with Bathsheba can be shocking to view uh, next to all of the other things that he did, uh, the stellar example of his character in so many ways. Uh, But I believe it's to help us remember no matter uh, who we are, we should remain humble and sober before the Lord. And this is what is said about um, examples of sin and disobedience that were committed by the children of Israel when they wandered in the wilderness. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11 says this, Now all these things, the things that they did in the wilderness, happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So Paul is, is encouraging the Corinthians, who had a lot of issues, a lot of pride, a lot of self-serving going on there. He's, he's warning them. He's saying, look, you need to be, you know, we have examples of the scriptures of people who did things wrong and the, the, the consequences of those actions. And we need to examine ourselves and make sure that we don't fall into that category and, and be puffed up because, you know, the, the scripture also says uh, pride comes before fall. And so we need to be cautious and we need to remain on guard against leaving ourselves open, uh, especially to the tempter, uh, who is Satan, because he's looking to take advantage of us any chance he can get. First Peter 5, 8, very familiar verse says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. devour. So there's real spiritual warfare taking place all the time. You know, just because you don't have bullets zipping past your head doesn't mean you're not being shot at. Um, you know, if you love the Lord and you're serving him in any way, shape, or fashion, then you're a target. Uh, just being a Christian, you, you, you've changed sides. You have come out of the world and under the, the, the rulership, uh, temporary though it may be, uh, of Satan. And he, he hates your guts. And uh, there's no love there. And so there is always spiritual conflict taking place. And um, so this man, David, was, was doing and had done so many things for God. He, he, you know, took down the giant, the champion of the Philistines, and a champion of, of the kingdom of darkness as well uh, because he was very blasphemous. Uh, he was, represents blasphemy. And um, so he had done so many things for the Lord that he was a big target. David was, you know, he was always having somebody gunning for him, and uh, human or not. And uh, he let his guard down, and he fell into temptation. You know, uh, David was, was the king, and he was supposed to be out, you know, during this certain time of the year where, where war and conflict took place, and he decided not to be there. And, um, you know, the, the, the scripture says, you know, his feet were in the wrong place. You know, the scripture says... Um, uh, about the, the, the word of God, um, your, your, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And the word of God is supposed to be a guide and a light to us. And, and when we're in it, when we are, 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 are in our devotions and we're saturating ourselves with the word of God, it's going to shine light on our feet where we're standing. Because we don't always know. You know, we go through life and we, we have different things to do. And, and again, like Paul was encouraging the Corinthians, we're to examine ourselves, to find out where we are. 
Well, the word of God will shine light on where you are. But it doesn't just leave you there because maybe you're not standing in the right place. Maybe your feet are in the wrong place. You're like, uh-oh, <laughs> follow the yellow brick road, follow the yellow brick road, uh-oh. And, and, and you realize that you need to get back on track. You need to get back on path. You need to get back on the way. And so the word of God is a light unto our path. And so, uh, you know, David had the word of God. He knew it. And he knew that he was not in the right place. And he left himself open. And Satan exploited it. And as a result, he fell into temptation. But that doesn't have to happen to us. It also says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, it says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So this says that God has put in protections for us, you know, a fire escape, if you will, um, when that fire of temptation comes our way. And, um, you know, the problem is that there's no guarantee that we're going to take it every time. You know, we have to make a choice. It's up to us. You know, God will set it up. And again, he's, there's always, you know, there may not be a lot of time. <laughs> you know, there may be a moment where the temptation just, boom, it's right there. And you've got to decide right then and there what you're going to do. And um, it's a choice. You're either going to yield to the Lord or you're going to yield to the temptation. It's just, it's just that simple. Unfortunately, David yielded to the temptation and it landed him in big trouble. And so David fell into sin and then he covered it up for quite a while. He knew what he'd done. And uh, one of his army commanders, Joab, he sends the, you know, the, the orders to have Uriah uh, uh, killed by the hand of Joab. So Joab knew about it. Bathsheba knew at least part of it. She may not have known, you know, that David had her husband killed. Um, but God is the one who knew about it all. God, you know, he saw it all. And, you know, David was the king that God chose. And, you know, God used David as an example in so many ways. And so he was going to hold him accountable, you know, as he does for all of us. We're held accountable. If, if you name the name of Christ, if you are a believer, if you are a member of the family in the household of God, then he's going to hold you accountable. <laughs> he holds, you know, the unrighteous accountable too, but, but differently. But you know, this is what it says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give, a, a, give an account. Sorry. So God sees it all. And God wasn't going to let David keep this tucked under the rug forever. So he sends his prophet Nathan to confront David. Now, David, because he was a righteous man and because he loved the Lord so much, he wasn't really comfortable during this time that he was keeping his sin hidden or he thought he was keeping it hidden. He was miserable. This is what he writes later after he's been forgiven about that time when he was, you know, hiding his sin. Psalm 32 verses 3 and 4 says, when I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. This is just one of the ways that David kind of expresses in his poetic, poetic manner what he was going through. He was miserable. And that's how anybody is. If, if, you are, if you are a believer, if you are righteous because of the blood of Jesus Christ upon you, sin is not going to ever be comfortable, or it shouldn't be. Now, you know, the warning and the danger is, is that if you let that sin linger, 
over time, your sensitivity to that sin will get duller and duller and duller. And the danger is that you can get to a place where you're no longer aggravated by it. You're no longer, you know, uh, what, what is it, uh, oysters, <clears throat> you know, make pearls, and, and the pearl is generated by an irritant. Well, that's what, the, the, that's what sin is supposed to be to us. It's supposed to be, it's supposed to be more than that, but an irritant. But what does, the, what does the oyster do to compensate for that irritation? It starts to continue, you know, to, to put this, this covering over that, 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 that grain of sand so that it's not irritated anymore. And after a while, it's heaped up so much of a covering that, you know, it's probably not a good analogy that it produces something that's beautiful because <laughs> that doesn't really work. But for my, my purpose in uh, talking about letting sin dull you, you're not supposed to let that happen. And uh, David was in very real danger of that happening. But he was so sensitive and, and loved the Lord so much that, again, he, he was miserable. And I, I think of, you know, uh, David go, during this time, this pressure just building up. He knew the Lord knew. He knew that at some point this was going to come to a head. And I think of the picture of like a water balloon that's being filled with water. And you just keep pouring more and more water in and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And the tension of that balloon just gets tighter and tighter and tighter. And all it's going to take for that water balloon to just blow up and just gush is just a little tiny prick. You barely have to touch it. And I think that the pressure had been building up and mounting up so much in David's life that he was, he was ready for that to happen. And, and that, na- that pen that God used for that balloon was Nathan. Nathan was that pen. And I believe that he was relieved when he was called out. I think he was tired of holding all that in. Uh, for all that time, and, and I think it bears out because his confession was swift. When Nathan says, David, you're the man, David's response in the very next verse, it says, very next line, it says, so David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He didn't, he didn't make any excuses. He just, he just this is it, man. I, I, I've sinned against the Lord. And all sin is against the Lord, and David knew this. So the question for us, you know, um, are you struggling with sin? You know, it's a question that, you know, uh, is valid because you know, we live in a sinful world. And though we may be saints, we are still susceptible and capable of sin. Are you keeping something hidden? Hopefully not. If you are, confess it to the Lord and get that weight off of you. And David carried a weight for a long time. And he, again, I believe he was relieved. See that the Lord is faithful and that he is also swift to forgive you like he was with David. In the latter part of verse 13, this is what it says uh, of, of the Lord's response to David's repentance and confession and repentance. It says, and Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. And it was instant. It wasn't like Nathan went away, had a sandwich and came back for 20 minutes. Hey, you know what, David? The Lord said to me. No, it was it was instant right there. As, as, as David confessed and said, I have sinned against the Lord. The Lord was waiting to forgive David. That's why he, he orchestrated this whole thing with sending his prophet to him. Because the Lord's like, okay, it's time to deal with this. So that I can, because he knew David was going to confess, and he knew he was going to repent. And the Lord was like, okay, when that happens, as soon as that happens, David, you're forgiven. And, and God is the same way with us. So, you know, don't feel like if, if there's something that, that's, that you're struggling with is sin and it's, and you've not brought it to the Lord. Don't feel like the Lord is, is waiting to come down on you or he's going to make you suffer, you know, before he forgives you. The, the forgiveness is instant. And, um, 
although the, the Lord fully forgave David um, for all that he'd done and put away his sin, there were still consequences to that sin. And those were not put away, and, and, and he'd have to deal with those. Uh, but it, but it, when it comes to forgiveness, this is what First John 1, 9 says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we can and we should come to God if we do sin to receive his forgiveness. But again, there could still be consequences to our actions. And so David's sin cost not only him, but it cost others. And that's the trouble with sin is that it's never one dimensional. When it goes off, there's a blast radius and most likely someone else is going to get hit with the shrapnel. And in this case, there was a newborn child that was not going to live more than a week. And David, of course, is heartbroken over this, but he fully understood and accepted the outcome. Why? Why did David accept the outcome? Because he, he didn't become bitter over the death of the child because he saw God's grace in the end. And verses 22 and 23 of Second Samuel chapter 12 reads this way. And he, speaking of David, said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. So David knew that the child didn't have the opportunity to live in this life, but he knew full well that he lives on in the next with the Lord, and David knew that he would join him one day. And, and it's in God's grace that he spared the child from a life likely filled with turmoil, conflict, and, and stigma. Um, th- those things would have followed him throughout his life. And so although David knew that he was the cause of this outcome, he didn't let it cloud the grace and the mercy of God that was shown to him and forgiving him and um, allowing him to move on. Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says this, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? And so David didn't despise God's methods. He saw the goodness of God through all the other circumstance, and he worshipped him despite the consequences. And so to close, uh, tonight, we again, we looked at three men who had different circumstances, Uh, But they all came to the same conclusion in order to face or to get through them. And that was to look upon the one that was bigger than any of their circumstances. And so we should take away the same lesson and remember that God is always with us and he's worthy of our worship no matter what. And I'll close with this verse. This is from Psalm 29, verse 2. And it simply says, give unto the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Let's worship. Oh, Father, Lord, the truth and the reality of you being our God and you being worthy is, is one that uh, is unmistakable. Um, for us who, who believe, we know you, we have seen you, we understand uh, that you are good and that above all, uh, you are good. Uh, you are holy, but you are good to us. And no matter what we face, no matter what you allow in our lives, uh, Lord, we can get through those things not having to do it on our own, but to know that you are with us because, again, you are good. And no matter what the circumstances, we can always come to you, uh, whether it's trouble or, or, or fear or turmoil or even sin. Father, we can come to you and we can, we can be restored, we can be strengthened, and, uh, Lord, we can move forward. And we worship you as a result of all these things. And so may you bless these things to our heart and may you be blessed. And may you indeed get us all home safely, we ask tonight, in Jesus' name.
Amen.